Chapter 14, Part 1 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 13, The Hegemony of Thebes. Part 1. Jason of Pherae. The Battle of Leuctra. The balance of power in Greece had been swayed for a hundred years by the two rivals, Sparta and Athens, and now the peace of Callias had formally adjusted an equilibrium between them. But this dual system was threatened from the very outset by formidable dangers. It was clear that new forces had arisen within the last few years, which would dispute the leadership of Hellas with the two older states. There had been a development of military power in the north, and two cities had come into dangerous prominence, Thebes and Pherae. Of the rise of Pherae we know less than of the rise of Thebes. At the time of the Peace of Callias, we make the sudden discovery that the Thessalian cities, which were usually in a state of feud, have been united, and that Thessaly has consequently become one of the great powers of Greece. This was the doing of one man, there had arisen at Pherae a despot, who was not merely vigorous and warlike, but whose ambition ranged beyond the domestic politics of Thessaly, and sought to play a great part on the wider stage of Hellas. Jason had established his dominion by means of a well-trained body of six thousand mercenaries, and also doubtless by able diplomacy. The most influential citizen of Pharsalus exposed at Sparta the ambitious and menacing views of Jason, and urged the importance of checking his career before he became too powerful. But Sparta, pressed by other more importunate claims, declined to interfere. Then Pharsalus yielded to the solicitations of Jason, and helped to install him as Tagus of an united Thessaly. The power of the despot extended on one side into Epirus, where Alchitus, prince of the Molossi, became his vassal, and on the other side to Macedonia. A monarch endowed with uncommon political and military ability at the head of all Thessaly, with the best cavalry in Greece at his command, seemed likely to change the whole course of Hellenic affairs. That he aimed at becoming the first power in Hellas, at attaining the hegemony or leadership, as it was called, there can be no question. Nor, considering the weakness and jealousies of the southern Grecian states, would this object, with his resources, be difficult of achievement. But if his ambition was not bounded by Thessaly, neither was it confined to Hellas. His dream was to lead Hellas against Persia, and overthrow the power of the great king. How serious he was in his great projects is shown by the fact that he set about building a navy. Thessaly was again to become a sea power. As in the days of legendary story, when the Argo ventured forth, from the landlocked bay of the Alcus. The power of Sparta had evidently declined, but she was still regarded as holding the highest position in Greece, and it was the first object of Jason to weaken her still further and dethrone her from that place. His second immediate object was to gain control of the key of southern Greece, the Pass of Thermopylae, and as this was commanded by the Spartan forces of Heraclea, these two objects were intimately connected. His obvious policy was to ally himself with Sparta's enemy, Thebes, and Thebes, in her isolated position, leapt at his alliance. 
The treaty between the Boeotian and Thessalian federations was probably concluded not long before the peace of Callias. According to the terms of that peace, all parties were to recall their armaments from foreign countries and their garrisons from foreign towns. Athens promptly recalled Iphacrates from Corsera, but Sparta on her side failed to fulfill the contract. King Cleombrotus had, shortly before, led an army to Phocis, and now, instead of disbanding it, he was ordered to march against Thebes and compel that state to set free the Boeotian cities. One voice, perhaps, in the Spartan assembly was raised against this violation of the recent oaths, a violation which was also unfair to the allies who served in the Lacedaemonian army. But in this hour Sparta was led on, as one of her admirers said, by a fatal impulse inspired by the gods. The feeling of hatred against Thebes, diligently fostered by Agesilus, swept away all thoughts of policy or justice, and the voice which was raised for justice and policy was scornfully cried down. The duel between Thebes and Sparta was inevitable, and all Greece, confident in Spartan superiority, looked to see Thebes broken up into villages or wiped out from among the cities of Hellas. Even Thebes herself had hardly hoped for success. But Sparta would have done well to disband the army of Cleombrotus and organize a new force with the help of those allies who were willing to support her. The object of Cleombrotus, who was posted near Chironia, in the gate between Phocis and Boeotia, was to reach Thebes. And as we have seen in the case of former military operations in this country, his direct road lay along the western and southern banks of Lake Copaeus, by Chironia and Haliartus. The aim of the Thebans was to prevent him from reaching his objective, and they posted their forces nigh to Chironia, where, nearly a quarter of a century before, a confederate army had waylaid Agesilus. But Cleombrotus disappointed his enemy. He marched southward by a difficult road round Mount Helicon to Thisbe, and thence pounced on the port of Creusus, which he captured along with twelve Theban ships in the harbour, and by this swift stroke having secured his rear, he advanced northward along the road to Thebes. When he reached the height of Leuctra, he found that the way was barred by the Theban army. Leuctra lies on the hills which form the south limit of a small plain, somewhat more than half a mile broad, traversed by the brook of the upper Asipus. The road from the coast to Thebes crosses it, and ascends the hills on the northern side, where the Beatarchs and their army were now drawn up. The round top of one of these low hills, just east of the road, was leveled and enlarged to form a smooth platform. Here the Theban hoplites of the left wing were posted, and the artificial mound marks their place to this day. The numbers of the two hosts are uncertain. The Lacedaemonians, in any case considerably superior, may have been about eleven, the Theban about six thousand strong. But the military genius of one of the Beatarchs, now for the first time fully revealed, made up for the deficiency in strength. Instead of drawing out the usual long and shallow line, Epaminondas made his left wing deep. This wedge, fifty shields deep, of irresistible weight, with the sacred band under the captaincy of Pelopidas in front, was opposed to the Spartans who, with Cleombrotus himself, were drawn up on the right of the hostile army. It was on his left wing that Epaminondas relied for victory. The shock between the Spartans and Thebans would decide the battle. It mattered little about the Boeotians on the center and left, whom he could not entirely trust. The Thespians, who were present by constraint, were at the last moment permitted to depart, 
but their retreat was cut off and they were driven back to the camp by the phocians and other of the lacedaemonian allies who by detaching themselves for this purpose weakened their own army without effecting a useful result the battle began with an engagement of the cavalry in this arm the lacedaemonians were notoriously weak and now their horsemen easily driven back carried disorder into the line of foot cleombritus who was confident of victory then led his right wing down the slopes the centre and left being probably impeded in their advance by the cavalry and on his side epaminondas with the theban left moved down from their hill deliberately keeping back the rest of the line the novel tactics of epaminondas decided the battle the spartans twelve deep though they fought ever so bravely could not resist the impact of the theban wedge led by pelopidas king cleombritus fell and after a great carnage on both sides the thebans drove their enemies up the slopes back to their camp in other parts of the field there seems to have been little fighting or slaughter the lacedaemonian allies when they saw the right wing worsted retired without more ado a thousand lacedaemonians had fallen including four hundred spartans and the survivors acknowledged their defeat by demanding the customary truce to take up the dead it might be thought that they would have immediately retreated to Creusus, the place of safety which the dead king had prudently provided in their rear. It is not likely that the enemy, whom they still considerably outnumbered, would have attempted to stop their way, or even to harass them seriously from behind. The Thebans could hardly realize the victory which they had never expected. It was more than enough to have defeated the Lacedaemonians in the open field, to have slain their king, and to have compelled them to evacuate Boeotia. But the Lacedaemonian army remained in its entrenchments on the hill of Leuctra, in the expectation of being reinforced by a new army from Sparta, and retrieving the misfortune. A messenger was sent home with the inglorious tidings, and the shock was borne there with that studied self-repression which only the discipline of Sparta could inculcate in her citizens. The remaining forces of the city were hastily got together, and placed under the command of Archidamus, son of Agisilus. Some of the allied states sent aid and the troops were transported by ship from Corinth to Creusus. But all this took time, and meanwhile Thebes had not been idle. Two messengers were sent with the good news, to Athens and to Thessaly. At Athens the wreathed messenger was received with an ominous silence. The Theban victory was distinctly unwelcome there. It opened up an indefinite prospect of warfare and seemed likely to undo the recent pacification, while the Athenians were far less jealous of Sparta than of Thebes. At Pharae the tidings had a very different reception. Jason marched forthwith to the scene of action, at the head of his cavalry and mercenaries, flying so rapidly through Phocis that the Phocians, his irreconcilable enemies, did not realize his presence until he had passed. He cannot have reached Leuctra until the sixth or seventh day after the battle. The Thebans thought that with the help of his forces they might storm the Lacedaemonian entrenchments, dangerous though the task would be. But for the policy of Jason, the humiliation already inflicted on Sparta was enough. The annihilation of the enemy, or any further enhancement of the Theban success, would have been too much. He dissuaded the Thebans from the enterprise, and induced them to grant a truce to the Lacedaemonians, with leave to retire unharmed. This the Lacedaemonians were now forced to accept, notwithstanding the approach of reinforcements, for their position was totally altered through the presence of the seasoned troops of Jason, and it was clear that the foe would not wait to attack them till the expected reinforcements arrived. The retreat was carried out at night, for the leaders suspected the good faith of their opponents. 
On the coast the defeated troops met the army of Archidamus, which had come in vain, and all the forces were disbanded. Such were the circumstances of the Lacedaemonian evacuation of Boeotia after the Battle of Leuctra, according to the historian whose authority we are naturally inclined to prefer. But the memory of Xenophon might have misled him in regard to some of the details, and there was another account from which it might be inferred that the events moved more rapidly. There is something to be said for the view that the army of Archidamus was not dispatched as a relief force after the Battle of Leuctra, but was already on its way before the battle was fought, that Cleombrotus had the alternative of waiting for Archidamus before he ventured on an action, and that his visit to Creusus was, in fact, connected with the expected arrival of reinforcements, that Jason, too, was hastening to support the Thebans, and that the messenger who bore the news of victory met him on his southward march. On this view, the truce might have been concluded on the morrow of the battle, and we avoid the difficulty of supposing that the defeated army decided to remain for a week on the hill of Leuctra when the road to Creusus was opened behind them. The question is of little moment, save in so far as it concerns the movements of the Tagus of Thessaly. The significance of the sequel of the battle lies in the prominent part which he played as a mediator, and we should like well to know whether his original purpose was to fight side by side with his Theban allies. We also hear darkly of his avowed intention to bring help by sea, and we are tempted to speculate at what point the new Thessalian navy would have acted at this crisis. Jason returned to his northern home, but on his way he dealt another blow at Sparta on his own account, by dismantling Heraclea, the fort which controlled the pass of Thermopylae. He thus compassed an object of great importance for his further designs. These designs he soon began to unfold. He fixed on the next celebration of the Pythian festival as a time to display his greatness and his power to the eyes of assembled Hellas. He sent mandates around to the Thessalian cities to prepare oxen, sheep, and goats for the sacrifice at Delphi, offering a gold crown as a prize for the fairest ox, and he issued commands that the armed host of the Thessalians should be ready to march with him to keep the feast. He proposed to usurp the rights of the Amphictyonic board and preside himself over the games. A rumor was set afloat that he intended to seize the treasures of the temple, but it is hard to believe that an aspirant to the hegemony of Greece would have perpetrated an act so manifestly impolitic. Apollo told the Delphians, who were fluttered by the report, that he would himself guard his treasure. But the priests were soon to breathe freely. The Phocians were to be spared the mortification of seeing the hated Thessalian in their land. One day Jason held a review of his cavalry, and afterwards sat to hear petitions. Seven young men, to all appearance wrangling hotly, drew near to lay their dispute before him, and slew him where he sat. The death of Jason was the knell of all his plans, the unity of Thessaly, the high position which it had attained among the Grecian powers, depended entirely on him. The brothers who succeeded to his place were slight, insignificant men, without the ability, even if they had possessed the will, to carry out his far-reaching designs. It is the bare truth to say that the blades of the seven young men changed the course of history. Jason was well on his way to attain in eastern Greece the supreme position which his great fellow-despot Dionysius held in the west. Nor is it extravagant to suppose that under him Thessaly might have accomplished part of the work which was reserved for Macedonia. Politically, indeed, his work is to be condemned. He had not laid the foundations of a national unity in Thessaly. 
The unity which he had compassed was held by military force only and his own genius. We cannot congratulate a statesman on a result of which the stability hangs on the chances of his own life. In this respect, Jason stands in the same rank with Epaminondas. The death of the Thessalonian potentate decided that, of the two northern states which had recently risen into prominence, Boeotia, not Thessaly, should take the torch from Sparta. The significance of the Battle of Leuctra is perhaps most clearly revealed in the fact that, during the wars between Sparta and Thebes which followed it, the parts hitherto played by the two states are reversed. Thebes now becomes the invader of the Peloponnese, as Sparta before had been the invader of Boeotia. Thebes is now the aggressor. It is as much as Sparta can do to defend her own land. The significance of Leuctra is also displayed in the effect which it produced upon the policy of Athens, and in its stimulating influence on the lesser Peloponnesian states, especially Arcadia, which was wakened up into new life. The supremacy of Thebes was the result of no overmastering imperial instinct, and was inspired by no large idea, but it brought about some beneficial results. Sparta had grievously abused the dominion which had fallen into her hands, and the period of Theban greatness represents the reaction against the period of Lacedaemonian oppression. The two objects of Theban policy are to hinder Sparta from regaining her old position in the Peloponnesus, and to prevent the revival of Jason's power in Thessaly. Although no express record has been handed down as to constitutional changes, there is some evidence which has suggested the belief that the Thebans drew tighter the bond which united the Boeotian communities by transforming the federation into a national state. Thebes, seemingly, became in Boeotia what Athens was in Attica. The other cities, Coronia, Thespiae, Haliartus, and the rest, were uncitied and became as Marathon and Eleusis. Their citizens exercised their political rights in an assembly at Thebes. If this be so, we may suspect that Epaminondas played the part of legendary Theseus, but the new constitution had no elements of stability, and it endured but for a few years. End of chapter 14, part 1. Recording by Phil Surrett, Ottawa, Ontario.